0: In Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, it says, The decision is announced by messengers, the holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and gives them to anyone he wishes, and sets over them the lowliest of people. Today, we learn that even the greatest of greats are still just trees. This is Day 7. Welcome to the Journey Through Daniel podcast, where every day we set aside space in our lives to experience God's word. Together we'll discuss the content and meaning of each passage and how the book of Daniel can help us understand more about who God is and the story he's writing for each of us every day. Welcome back to the Journey Through Daniel podcast. This is day 7. We are here once again with Brendan Lang. Yep. And we have a special guest today.
1: Ken Ken let's Ken go. Norton pew, K-Bomb pew, 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 <laughs> Captain K. <laughs> you know it. Over here. Other hey. half of the BK Lounge. Oh, oh f- wow. Me. Ken and I have we didn't do a podcast not yet. We haven't
2: done a podcast yet. We've B-Lang. talked about
1: creating a podcast it's based on the- sports and Bible and It's
2: going to be called the BK Lounge. <laughs> well, first off, let's say We're why you sp- are
0: allowed in our room. And that's that you are a pastor of student ministries. Mm. Oh, yeah. That gets you in the door. That gets me in the door. To talk about sports and Bible.
2: I am honored that that's what the ticket is.
0: I mean, I would listen, mainly because it's you guys, not because <laughs> of the topic necessarily. Well, we've had
2: one session already with students. Yeah. It was great. What'd you talk about? Science and faith. That's I mean, re- went, Genesis 1, we that's went that's all ancient Near East on them. I mean, we went straight. We went we straight. to Marduk.
1: We missed our opportunity to do this podcast when we did a Journey Through Genesis. And it's like, man. We could have done this again.
0: Listen, we can do it again. Whatever you guys want. Balls in your court, to use your metaphor. Well, today's a special day. We're cutting down a cosmic tree as Brendan would like to say. I don't totally understand that, but I do have a question because today, the day that this is airing and just like spoiler behind the scenes, we don't record these like right the day of, or even a few days before, particularly this year, we were like, let's do this well in advance so that anything we're saying is not contextualized and not colored by the current events because we could easily do that. But what is the day that we're recording? Well, Today is election day.
2: I mean, Ken. Election, welcome, election welcome to the Tuesday. podcast yeah. on Election Day. Ken? I will see myself coming, out. coming in hot. I will see. It. Yeah, that's the
1: question see I have Who are you voting for, Brendan? Brendan, you're Brendan, putting who it on are me voting first. For? Yeah, that's our question. You got to answer that question first. I am. Gosh, what's the most political way to answer this? The most political yeah. way? You mean politically charged way? Politi- or <laughs> I guess here's what I'll say: I am
0: voting for the best candidate. Wow. I know, and you know what's fun about me and Ken is mm. generally politically we lean in different directions, and I say lean because I think we are like firmly rooted it's sort of right in the middle but
2: that's been the fun part of our relationship. It you is. Know, way back in the beginning we used to do this all the time.
0: Always couched with a little bit of a side. I tell dream. you what
2: I have learned so much from you and your point of view in life. <laughs> What is Tyler and it, Honestly, it has changed how I view things.
0: Me too. It's I mean, it's changed helpful. the way that I ask questions. I ask Ken instead. I say, "How can you believe this?" I say, <laughs> <laughs> "Ken, what? how should I approach this subject?" I mean, because he has a different perspective. He's been in the military. He's got a lot of life experience. Very mature guy. It's, it's fun. Been fun to yeah. do. It. That's good stuff. Well, today there's a lot that can be said about leadership. That's Brendan sure. actually
2: didn't say who he was voting for. Well, <laughs> we're gonna we let didn't. him off the hook because okay. well, I voted for Brendan Lang. Who does I doesn't, wrote it in? Who doesn't vote I for Brendan Lang? I wrote it in, and you may have the opportunity to do that the president.
0: I think I said I voted for the best candidate. So I did say that I voted for Brendan that Lang. That would be so, terrible yeah. for everybody. I think,
2: I think if Brendan was president, we That'd would be... I think
0: some things would get done. And by I that I mean his, everybody was his keys. A everybody lot. would nap more, everything some would go to like some sort of like chip in Embedded in your wrist fob system for keys, because that's what he needs. Anyways, there's a lot that happens today, and particularly, it happens with Nebuchadnezzar. That's right. It's his game now, so Brendan, to get to start. Why don't you take us through the commentary?
1: Day 7, the cutting down of a cosmic tree. Daniel 4 records the story of another dream that comes to Nebuchadnezzar. Like the dream in chapter 2 and the story in chapter 3, this dream focuses on another large object, a tree. This was not just any large tree. The tree that Nebuchadnezzar sees has cosmic features. It is described as standing in the middle of the land, literally the center of the earth, is so tall that its top touched the sky and is visible to the ends of the earth. Although Nebuchadnezzar is confused about the meaning of the dream, cosmic trees like this one were likely familiar images to the king. Cosmic trees frequently appeared in Mesopotamian iconography as symbols of imperial power. In fact, in some depictions, Mesopotamian kings are portrayed as personifications of cosmic trees. The Bible, which was written in this cultural context, uses the image of cosmic trees in several places to offer critiques of proud kings and their kingdoms. Ezekiel 31 describes the empire of Assyria as a cosmic tree that towered higher than all the trees of the field and was the envy of all the trees of Eden in the Garden of God. As the prophecy goes on, it tells how God cut down the great tree of Assyria because of its pride and evil ways. Nebuchadnezzar, who incidentally was instrumental in conquering Assyria, missed the meaning of the dream, perhaps out of ignorance or stubbornness. However, the dream's significance shouldn't be lost on us. Just as the great tree of Assyria was cut down, the cosmic tree of Nebuchadnezzar would be cut down too. Just as the cosmic tree of Nebuchadnezzar was cut down, so too could God bring down the proud rulers of our society. Sometimes it might seem like self-absorbed autocrats are running the world. However, Nebuchadnezzar's dream reveals an alternative perspective on reality. The Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. Daniel 4, 17.
0: For day 7, we're reading Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 18. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and the peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my god and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers, the Holy Ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and gives them to anyone he wishes, and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Ken, you want to take us through our reflection questions for Day 7?
2: Question 1. At a time when people are vying for seats of power across the nation, what does Daniel 4.17 communicate to you? The Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and gives them to anyone He wishes, and sets over them the lowliest of people. Question 2. Scripture often describes the kingdom of God in upside-down terms. How does Daniel 4.17 reflect this upside-down value system? Where do you see our society making progress in embracing upside-down ideals? Where can we do better?
0: This whole passage starts out a little bit confusing. It looks like the perspective of writing changes completely here. And it's talking from the king's perspective. Why did this change all of a sudden? Why did it change? What do you mean, why did it change? Of course, why did it change? It's like a new book. It's like, well, okay, I'm just going to read the king's diary now. That's a good question.
1: I haven't given a whole lot of thought to it. I mean, I think that what it does in some ways, this is the last time we hear of Nebuchadnezzar. He's been a key figure in the first four chapters now of the book. And here it's actually him sharing his own take. We've heard like narratives that talk about him, but here it's now him. And we see an evolution in his character in some ways. And so kind of, we've seen these confessions, these praises that he gives at the end of each one of his stories. Here it moves to a new place. And so it sort of gives it an air of authority that, not that we don't believe there's authority in those first three chapters, But when Nebuchadnezzar himself is talking about these things, it takes it to another level. It's like a firsthand account. It's like, oh, you can believe it now. Yeah. Well,
0: this is a very confusing little dream here, I guess it would be for him anyways. In hindsight for us, it's like, well, duh, you've had multiple dreams like this. It's kind of obvious what's happening to us, but it's probably not obvious to him given the circumstances.
1: It's either it's not obvious or he doesn't want to believe it, or maybe even he wants to manipulate it because this is something that people would do in ancient times. It's like, if you have a bad dream, you have your people come and interpret it for you. But then there's always like some sort of ritual you do. You try to change the course of the future by doing certain rituals and things like that. And what I think this passage actually teaches us is that things are going to turn out the way God wants them to. And the way, I guess, you might say to make God change, because God does change. He changes. We see this like in the book of Jonah, for instance, when he sees people change their ways. God changes his decisions on the basis of how people act and whether they're willing to change their ways. And Nebuchadnezzar, as we'll see tomorrow, unfortunately doesn't do that.
0: But today we can get into this whole tree stuff. What's with the trees? Why are there so many trees? I've got lots of like Lord of the the Rings imagery. Well, maybe in this story, there's only one tree. But I was reading a book to my son actually this morning and it has a cosmic tree in it. What these children's books do, it takes like mythology that is popular Mm. in different cultures and it tries to like contextualize it within like a children's story. So this one was about like the Norse gods and the Viking gods and how they believe that the world is set up like a tree and you can climb this core tree or whatever and get sure. to either heaven or you can descend the core of the world is this tree so i guess that's the so context of my is question you're set up
1: to read daniel 4 i guess so <laughs> but like why is it always a tree Think about what trees contribute to our world. Of course, like, we can think about trees in terms of modern science and how, you know, they help absorb carbon dioxide and produce oxygen, things like that, right? But you think about shade, historically, they provided for people. You think about food, shelter that comes from the wood. Trees are essential, really, to any society. Where in world history do you see people living without trees? The majority of societies are living in fertile areas where there are trees. So trees are images of abundance, of providence. And that's where we get this idea sort of in the ancient Near East the world. This idea that trees were, in a lot of ways, God's way, the way of the gods of providing for their people. And what we see actually in the ancient Near East, there's a lot of discussion and debate about how this actually manifests itself. But kings oftentimes are associated with these cosmic trees where they would actually be presented, you might say, as cosmic trees. And certain... like,
0: we're talking like little trees, like saplings? Or, uh, well, bonsai trees. More bonsai <laughs> trees. <laughs> Tiny bonsai <laughs> <laughs> trees. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: the idea is that they're big and most importantly, importantly, that they provide, that they are the means by which God provided for the world. So if you think about kings this way, then it's an assertion on their part that they are God's providence to the world. They're the ones who benefit the world through what they can provide through their governance, through their gifts, things like that. Now, what's interesting is then you see scripture pick up this language, not just here in Daniel 4, but also in other passages. And I think that's really helpful for understanding what's going on here. You look at Ezekiel 31, you look at Ezekiel 17, then you look at the New Testament. We can talk about this too, like Mark 4. I, think
0: I was going to say, I think we had a tiny tree i got a tiny
1: tree i'm a shrub depends how you read it and interpret it but scripture picks up on this imagery and talks about how kings and kingdoms can be like trees and the constant theme what you see in all these old testament passages is that when a cosmic tree which is you know at the center of the earth which reaches to the heavens which is really trying to reach for something that it doesn't have the prerogative to have its pride is cut down its evil ways are cut down and made into a stump that maybe god can use and then work with
0: You kind of left us hanging there on the Mark passage. What what, what
1: shrub tree are we
0: talking about here? Uh,
1: I connect it to Mark 4, where Jesus gives the parable of a mustard shrub, because some of the language we see in Mark 4 is the same as the language we see here in Daniel 4 and in Ezekiel 31 and these other passages. And so it's very clear that Jesus is picking up on these, and he's making a contrast between the kingdom of God, because that's what he's talking about. What is the kingdom of God supposed to look like in comparison to the kingdoms of this world? And the kingdoms of this world are associated with these great trees, these magnificent trees... In like redwoods. That's a great image. It's these lofty trees that in a lot of ways are proud because again, they're reaching for things that if we're applying these to people, they're reaching for things that don't rightfully belong to them. And the kingdom of God looks different. Yeah. Birds can rest in the limbs of the mustard shrub that the kingdom of God is represented by, but it's humble. It's small. It's not it's boisterous. There's a lot of thing. them. Yeah. So it's different. I think that's the important thing. I think that's important for us as a church to understand what the church should look like. Sounds like the Tower of Babel. So it does it's actually the same language you get in tower of Babel all yeah. right oh Genesis got it really excited no well because the tower reaches to the heavens the that's same what I language thought. here is just to get into Hebrew a little bit the word Babel it's the same word in Hebrew for Babylon. for Babylon for all sorts of reasons scholars interpreters whatever have translated as Babel at this point it's really kind of tradition but most people would understand it as being rooted in Babylonian mythology about ziggurats and the function of ziggurats which were understood to be staircases which reached the heavens which allowed men to go up and gods to come down and that's what but this tree in a lot of ways is like, it's like this ziggurat, which connects heaven and earth. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar thought he was, what he was doing. And Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, rebuilt a ziggurat in Babylon. So there are really interesting connections. The other the other tree that I can think of,
0: oh wait, no, I can think of a lot of trees in the Bible, but the most prominent tree I can think of is the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Yeah. The very beginning, right? Yeah. What's that tree? What's that tree about? (laughs)
1: Yeah, what's his... We'll talk about this more tomorrow. Actually, we won't talk about the tree, but we will talk about this connection between Genesis 1 and 1 through 4, where you see people who are given the ability to have power, authority, dominion over animals, and they reach for things that don't rightfully belong to them. They reach for a certain type of knowledge that belongs to God. And in fact, they really try to become like God. This is what their conversation with the serpent is all about in Genesis 3. So they try to become like God, and then... they lose that authority, that dominion that God gave them. He kicks them out of the garden, removes them from the tree, and so there are a lot of really great parallels there too. And we're going to talk about that more because there are other ways this passage relates to those opening. Well, we um, don't need to spoil it. Yes, but you I've got, spoiled you enough. Got to come I'm back sorry for tomorrow. That's right. So
0: here's my question about one of the lines that you did put in the commentary for today, Brendan. You said sometimes it might seem like self-absorbed autocrats are running the world. However, Nebuchadnezzar's dream reveals an alternative perspective on reality. And you can go on reading, but. You have it in very like nice concise language here. What is that alternative perspective in reality?
1: The alternative perspective of reality is that those who seem like they're in charge, who are proud, who seem to be in control of this world, and not just this world, not just governments, but even the things we experience on local levels, you know, businesses, corporations, families, whatever. It might seem like people who wield their power over others and are proud of the status they have, they aren't really in control at the end of the day. God is the one who's in control. He is the true king. He's the true provider. And so it's a message of comfort, I think, in a lot of ways for people who are living in situations like that, where it seems like these others are lording their power over others, over over them. I think big picture, and this is
0: something that like probably my own baggage and bringing to Christianity as a whole too, is this idea that like, oh, that's really nice. And it should give me comfort that God's in control ultimately. And he's in charge of whoever's in power. But how does that help me in my day to day? Like, how does that practically apply to my life?
2: I don't know. I think it's a different mindset of the deeper realities of what the kingdom of God is. Because I think when you look at power, that's the thing that's so tangibly in front of you. And it's something that I think we all strive to get because it gives us a sense of control when we have it. And so to recognize that God's kingdom is so different, to me, you have to completely rework in your brain what power actually looks like and how we should use it. Because it's so easily abused with everything.
0: But I guess that's like kind of my question. So like, how does it change power for us? How does should that help us frame
2: our days? For students, it would completely change what you view as powerful, I think. From a student perspective, and for all of us, I think we view seats of power as the main ideal. And it's like, if we get into positions where we can control things, and that's the ideal. But when you think about the kingdom of God so much, it becomes the servant, and taking the other side of that, where you start flipping things, and the power of serving and humility become the ultimate pieces of currency, or things that actually represent the kingdom of God. And so, it's a total shift of what do we view as powerful, and what are we actually going after? Because you can go after control, or you can go after loving and serving people as your form of power in this world. And obviously, from a kingdom perspective, we would want to serve and reflect Jesus in that.
1: And that's what Daniel 7, I know I'm spilling a lot of beans every time we talk here, but like what we can't miss is that there's going to be an authority figure who gets a spot on a throne next to the Father in heaven. And the way he gets that is through suffering in place of the people and representing the people and getting down and saying, I'm going to take the hits from the beasts. And this is what the kingdom of God looks like. It looks like people who have authority, who have power, who are leaders saying, I'm going to elevate those who are from the world's view beneath me. I'm going to raise them them up and I'm not going to wield my power over them. And so I think from a day-to-day practical perspective, and this can apply in so many different ways. One is like there is comfort that people who are suffering should take from the fact that God is ultimately going to make things right. And the truth is he alone in some ways will make things right, can make things right when we can trust that he's going to do that. But one of the ways he makes things right is by using his people. And so when we have opportunities to speak the truth, to confront evil, to confront pride, we should do that because as God's image bearers as his representatives. That's what it looks like sometimes for God to work against evil in this world. It's also a challenge. We've talked about this before to see, are we like Nebuchadnezzar in any way? And that's a practical outworking of this passage to recognize that we may be abusing power.
0: Yeah, I think what you guys said together is really helpful for somebody because there's
1: no competition.
0: That's the thing. Well, that's if, hard
2: for me. i compete in pretty much everything. Well, right, but... Which is probably <laughs> where I go wrong because it becomes like the idol, right? Over time. Sure, And then power
0: I, for the sake of power. Exactly. You just want to win. Well, you want to win. I just want to win. You want to
2: win in everything. And then it's so bad because then it's like even a ministry where you can compete in a ministry perspective. Yeah. And it's like, how did I get here? It's the subtlety of like, it's just how I'm wired and I have to check that in my heart or I could easily find myself in a position of competing for the wrong thing, whether that's numbers, whether that's how many students or people are coming to things and looking at other ministries. And then you find yourself in a position where it's like, I am now Nebuchadnezzar and how I'm making decisions to hold on to this perception that I own this thing.
0: I mean, you could do that with any job, like who's trying to get the next promotion. Who am I going up against? I think the thing that transcends all of it and the actual power that will elevate you over time, this is what you can apply to your life is like, ultimately God has the power. So the question is, who is serving the best and who is loving the best? And that's the
1: example we get from Jesus too. Just to hop back in and talk about some of the things we've talked about earlier with Genesis 11, a common theme we see in these stories is that people are trying to make names for themselves. That's you see in Genesis 11, where these tower builders try to make a tower that reaches the heavens so they could establish their names. When Nebuchadnezzar rebuilds that ziggurat we talked about, when he rebuilds buildings in Babylon, he does this. You can read inscriptions that say this for the sake of his name, because it's all about pride, all about establishing his legacy, all about being that champion that the whole world will know and remember. And I think that for us, we have to remember that that's... That's not our calling in life, that if we want to make a name for ourselves, ultimately our names are going to be forgotten. That's what happens to the tower builders. We never learn the names of those tower builders in Genesis 11. They try to make a name for themselves. They don't. Nebuchadnezzar tries to make a name for himself. His name is remembered by scripture, but he's also cut down because of that pride.
0: I mean, that's also applicable to our lives. You know, what is our motivation behind things? You can have a pure example
1: of service
0: without having the heart of service. You can be trying to appear as though you're doing things for the right reasons too, yeah. but you actually aren't. And the thing that's interesting about where our world is going is our generation sees through that. Like, very, very quickly. You can see the whole of somebody's life and be mm-hmm. like, this person tried to check this box here. Yeah, And we see people's hearts easier. I don't know what it is about our generation and Gen Z and younger, but like, we don't have time and we don't have patience for the fakeness of it. We can see what is authentic. We can see this with social media, right? And like, how it's turned from just like a place for people to express themselves to a place where people are influenced by people expressing themselves. Like and there's like this goal of like becoming an influencer. This yeah. is what we want, we just become, as much as
2: we are the product in the social media. Yeah, well, and that's the <laughs> and thing. That's like, the
0: you become the person who's sort of putting on a show or trying to be fake for the sake of that's the really likes. Hard. Or
2: it's really hard not to do that when that's the world that we all know. And you gain power from it. The drive to like become a YouTube or a Instagram or some type of influencer can be so easy all it takes is one video one moment and then here's this power and control you have and it's that overreaching maybe that like we see in scripture of Mm -hmm. of when it becomes a problem when you get a taste of something and you're like oh there's a drive to want it more Mm -hmm. and you go out and grab it and it's hard in our culture because we're within these products where it's easy to overreach and want something that's out there because it's so attainable these days
0: i think too it's like very easy to try to blame the platform to be like listen you guys need to regulate this and the damage you guys are doing to like generations or this misinformation that you guys are doing but let's be real if it's not going to be this platform it's going to be a different platform because obviously it's happening it's human nature ever since the times of daniel so it's going to continue in some form or another but you had this discussion question today that i thought was an interesting way that we can wrap this up you know this has been a tense season tense year for everybody. That's for lots sure. of variables going into that pandemic. There's a racial reconciliation that's been brought to the forefront of our attention through the news. There's an election season. There's all kinds of stuff happening. And here's the question that you posed to us today is, where do you see our society making progress and embracing upside down
1: ideals? And where can we do better? Curious how you guys would answer that. There's always progress. And progress isn't always, by the way, good. Like I think you have to like, what are you trying to push forward? But like I think And we look at the history of the church and racism and our relationship, you know, I'm a white man, how do I relate to my black brothers and sisters? And like, you know, this summer I led a study called The Color of Compromise, where we talked really frankly about how the church has really done a pretty poor job at this in the past, that the church is complicit in racism. And the fact that we're able to have some conversations like that in the context of a church reveals to me that there is progress, that the ways that we've done things historically don't have to persist, that there might be positive change in the future. But that doesn't mean we've gotten where we need to go. All of our society, but churches as well, have a lot of work to do to become the multi-ethnic churches that Jesus envisioned. When Jesus traveled around, he invited in Gentiles. He invited in others. He made specific attempts to reach Gentile communities. And his disciples were like, what the heck are you doing? You know. But that's the church that Jesus wanted. And for us to be that type of church, we need to learn from him, listen from him, and have conversations that maybe we wouldn't have had in the past.
2: When I look at society, I think it's hard to actually see progress. And honestly, it's kind of concerning. And I think it's the opportunity really for the church to continue to step in. And I think I'm more encouraged by you guys as the church and to see students and congregants and staff and just people around this table and people that we know of embodying the ideal of what that means. And so maybe I'm not seeing it on a big level, but I do get to see it on a small level. And that's the encouraging part when a student comes here and doesn't know Jesus and their life completely changes and their interactions with people and how they love someone, it's totally different than when they first came in. And that's really hard, I think, to share with like the right language. It's, it's hard to quantify it, it, too. It is. Like how do you put numbers? But like that? there are certain people, it comes to my mind where I'm like, instead of like wanting to be the most popular person in the ministry or to continue to like grab onto things, when they meet Jesus, their life kind of shifts and then they start serving. And you can so tangibly see that yeah. in the small interactions when you're with people over an extended period of time. And I think that's the thing that most encourages me because it's less of this broad thing and more of like, okay, if I just just focus in on my relationships. I will begin to see that, and over time, hopefully, that will manifest itself into God's kingdom actually coming and us having the opportunity to bring that here. And, well, so that, I I see and it that has more. come.
1: Yeah, and that's the point. Is like we talk about the mustard shrub. That's a branch of the mustard shrub, you might say. Like mm-hmm. we think of it as being this big thing, but no, it's where is Jesus's reign manifest, and it's manifest in situations yeah. like this, where this girl who comes to impact for the very first time, who doesn't know about Jesus and His ways, learns from you and from the community what Jesus is all about, and then yeah. lives that way. That's the kingdom of God becoming here on earth as it is in heaven.
0: Totally. I'm kind of with you.
1: There is this Do you see America
2: getting better?
0: <laughs> I mean, I guess my question is like, is America supposed to get better? You know, is anything supposed to get better if it's not the will of God type of thing? It's true. You know, I think we've bolstered ourselves up as this idea that we are the pinnacle of Christian democratic or republican ideals manifest in a place and an opportunity. And this American dream that people have propped up as what we should all aspire to. So when we say like, where do you see society? I'm kind of with you. I'd rather my society be the people closest around me. And like, let's just lean into the idea that we are getting better together. And like the things that we care about is reclaiming like, what is an American dream? What is... The promise of christianity and where are those at odds and for me i think the current climate of just the state of our country the state of our world is There's a lot of pain and it's only through pain when people start to feel and embrace and empathize with each other's pain that we start to get better as a society. And so I don't see broad, sweeping, tangible results on how we're getting better, but I see a lot of pain. And if we can be the type of people that learn from that and embrace it and understand that only through pain do we get better, that's the only way I can see it getting better. And I think the only way we can really embrace that is kind of what you named, which is like, we have to sit down when we're at odds with people and either agree to disagree or learn from each other. Have an arc together to understand that like, the way I see things is biased. We are all brought up a certain way, certain perspective. We all have different experiences.
1: You can't view the world objectively. It's impossible yeah. to, yeah, There's no you way. do your best, but you can't look at the world without the use of your own set of lenses, your own ways of approaching things.
0: And I think that like, there's one thing that's, universally true. And that's that we're all human. And so we're all imperfect. The more we can understand that everybody we encounter is in pain in some way or another, everybody's experiencing loss in some way or another, we can better help and care for each other. And I think that starts at an individual and small community level. And that collective, if we all do that, that's when the big society starts to change and move out of this like sense of pain and move towards something productive.
2: And I think that's the beauty of Jesus's life. I mean, that's what he does, right? Yeah. Like he obviously does it on a broad scale when he goes to the cross and through the resurrection, but all these small like interactions with people and how he valued just the humanity of people in their pain and in their moments, how he brought the best out of them and gave them a new light, I think is mm-hmm. the most interesting part of like, how do I do that for myself? How do I continually remind myself of those stories of what Jesus is actually trying to bring so that I can best reflect that in my world with my own lens and then learning to really put on the kingdom lens all throughout life and recognize that that's the true thing that we all want. And that will fix the brokenness. And Them. like
0: you said, it happens at an individual level, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't talk to Nicodemus at a well at noon.
1: He talks to the woman, the Samaritan woman. He talks to Nicodemus at night. Sure. Exactly. <laughs> you know? But he meets he, us but, all.
2: He meets us all in those moments that we need most.
1: Well, and I do think it doesn't let us off the hook of trying to make changes in society broadly Totally. Speaking.
2: I mean, isn't that like our responsibility?
1: Big C church. The
2: big C, yes. The big C church. Like, isn't that our opportunity as like the churches to do this on the scale of like...
1: Yeah, it is. As long as we're doing it with the ethics of the kingdom of God, as long as we're doing it under the lordship of Jesus, recognizing that he's the sovereign. But here's the irony I find. Sometimes we're actually trying to establish the kingdom of God in ways that are not consistent with the kingdom of God, and therefore we're not really realizing the kingdom of God on earth we're just realizing our own empires. So we have to be careful, but I think we should do what we can with those who are around us, with our immediate societies, our immediate communities, and recognize that may be all we as individuals have to do, but we still, as a whole, need to fight against things at a collective level and recognize Jesus did this as well. Like He talked to the women at the well. He did things on small, isolated levels to let people know that they care, that they mattered. He pushed back against individuals on individual levels, but he also confronted the Caesars of the day. He also confronted the high priests of the day. And I think as Christians, that's what we also ought to do.
0: I think the most tangible way that you can do this today is just go vote. I was listening to a podcast the other day and a speaker said, you know, a lot of people think that they'll just dismiss politics and they'll be like, I'm not political. So I don't want to like engage in that. Well, if you live in this world, particularly if you live in this country, everything's political. The road that you drive on and the water that you drink is political because somebody enacted those policies. So I think there's a reckoning happening right now where people are realizing that they actually do have power to quote unquote, be political. And that is just that your voice needs to be heard. And as Christians, that's step one. Let's vote with a well-informed and Kingdom perspective on the world. Thanks for joining us today for the Journey Through Daniel podcast. If this is your first time, so glad that you checked us out. To check out even more resources, children and family resources, and ebooks for all ages, visit our journey page at willowjourney.org and follow us for updates at Willow Creek NS on Instagram. If you have questions or would like to learn more about the ministries of Willow Creek Community Church, check us out at willowcreek.org.
2: We'll see you next time.